All right, all right. Well, once again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, we're going to be studying the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's a great book, a lot of stuff happening, a lot of rich history. We're going to be looking at, Dan- looking at Daniel chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, no worries. All the verses, everything we're going to study is going to be on the screen uh, behind my head. Now, this is a lot going on in this particular chapter. Um, and I was thinking to try to way to break it down. There's just no way. It all matters. It's all important. And so we're going to cover it. So let's start at Daniel chapter 2. Look at verses 1 to 3. And this is what it says. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before him, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So this is interesting. Our story starts out with a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. He's a real guy from history. He ruled the ancient city of Babylon from about 605 B.C. to about 560 B.C. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar actually attacked the city of Jerusalem uh, the first time he did. He did a couple times, 605 B.C., and that's when uh, Daniel, who we're reading about, was taken captive along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You ever heard those names before? That's when they were taken captive to Babylon, and they were held there. And so what we're reading now is after they've been um, taken captive. King Nebuchadnezzar is credited with building the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I don't know if you've heard of that as well. And he came back and ultimately destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., smashed it, destroyed the temple. Um, and also, that's when, when people ask about the, the Ark of the Covenant, what likely happened to it. 586 B.C., when they destroyed the city and the temple, they would have taken everything of value, including that. So we don't know, but that's more than likely that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians took it when they destroyed the city, and it's been lost to history ever since. So, little background. I'm always kind of a history buff. I love that stuff. Um, So our story starts out with King Nebuchadnezzar. He has these series of dreams, and these dreams are very disturbing to him. It's important to note these are not normal dreams. He didn't have a nightmare and wake up and go, nightmare, glad it's over. This was completely different. What he was experiencing was more profound, and he understood it to be vastly different than anything he experienced before. They were a portent. They were a message about the future. It involved him, and this was a big deal. Very serious. At least that's what he was convinced of. The troubling thing for him, as we're going to see, is he received all this information. We're going to talk about his dream, but he had no clue what it meant. He had no clue how to interpret it or what to do with it. He just knew it was very important. So it'd almost be like today, if any one of us were sitting in the cockpit of a modern-day airliner, feel like it's going down, and you have all these buttons and switches and knobs, and you don't have a clue what it means, what to do. You know it's important, you know it's very serious, you don't have a lot of time. So that's his mindset. That's how he was feeling, right? He had this huge sense of urgency, it was very big, and he was scared. So what does he do? He calls in all his wise men, his astrologers, his magicians, the people that help him try to see the world and understand and predict things. That's who he calls in. Now, before we progress, we need to understand that he called in his best and brightest, you know, these weren't fools. These, weren't, these were the people that were well-trained. They thought they could predict the future, see world events. Um, and that's why he called them in. He was reaching out to his best people. Now, what's cool is uh, archaeologists have actually found some of these tablets. And there were schools that astrologers went to to learn how to read, or they thought they could. And so they've actually recovered one. This is an ancient Babylonian tablet. You can see the kind of cuneiform writing on the top and bottom. But the top left, if you see, there's a star. And so this is one of the tablets they would have used to train new people, but also to read the future and try to understand things. Um, 
So it's really kind of cool. So Nebuchadnezzar, modern-day terms, he's freaking out. Has no idea what to do. He calls in his best people. They bring out their tablets, their smart books, and all their kind of, and they try to figure out what's happening. He calls them all together, and this is how it goes, verses uh, 4 to 6. Then the astrologers, after he calls them in, they answer the king. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will be happy to interpret it for you. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned to piles of rubble. Yeah, it's okay to go, oh my God. Everybody feel how serious this just got? But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream, tell me what I, drew, what I dreamt, and then tell me what it meant. So this is a two-pronged approach. So do you ever see what he's doing here? He's not just going to give them the information and let them try to figure this out. He's like, no, no, you have to tell me this dream, what I actually dreamt, and then tell me what it meant. If you don't, what's going to happen? I'm going to cut you into sausage. That's what's going to happen, right? He's not, he's not messing around. He's not asking if it's going to rain next week, if there's going to be a good harvest. He wants to know the future for sure. He knows this is a very, very tall order. He's not a fool. He also knows, we have to give him credit, he understands that his wise men may have fooled him before. They're maybe just kind of putting the pieces together and telling him what he wants to hear to buy time. They don't know everything, but that is not going to happen this time. He's not going to allow this. He's going to have them cut up and their homes destroyed, which means their family, anyone associated with them is going to be destitute or wiped off the face of the earth, too. This is huge, right? Now, the astrologers, they've been successful up to this point, but they know, you know, gulp, mm, they have no way out of this. They don't know what his dream is. They know they're finished. They realize it. So all they can do now is go back before the king and plead for time or try to draw some information out of him so they can try to come up with an interpretation. And that's what they do. Verses 7 to 11. Let's look at that. Once more they replied. So they went back to him again and again. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I am certain, what? You're trying to buy time. You're trying to gain time because you realize this is what I've decided. You know what's going to happen to you. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you, which is what? Death. Horrible death. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king is asking. No king, however great or mighty, has ever asked such a thing of a magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult, and this is the key. Look at this, what they say next. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Again, this last sentence is enormous. It actually reveals two very important things that are simmering under the surface that until now cannot be ignored. Number one, the astrologers do not have special powers. They do not understand the future. They, have no, they don't know. They have no idea. They're not privy to special information. They cannot get this information from God. It's only guesswork. The second thing that this last sentence requires is that the task put forth by Nebuchadnezzar requires true divine intervention. They actually 100% need help from God, from above. It requires a real God who has real power who can really tell them what's happening. And this is the point I want you to pay attention for. This is When you read these stories, get very detailed. 
King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians do not have a God that could do this. They know of no God that can do this. He called his wisest men in. And what happens? They're getting nervous. They don't know what's going to happen. Notice, did they reach out to their God in prayer and ask for help? No. They had no idea. They had, a, they had their own religion. They, their chief God was a God named, God named Marduk. He had his own religion, his own priests, his own worship songs, and all kinds of this, all, all the accoutrements, everything. They didn't reach out to that God. Why? That God has limitations. They never dreamed a God could do this. They couldn't rely on this God for everything. Their God was finite. He was not perfect. That's why they're in this situation. That's why, that's why Nebuchadnezzar, pardon my language, he's freaking out. That's why he's, desperate measures do what? Desperate times call for desperate measures. Sorry, I messed that up. Do you know what I mean? Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree that all the wise men in his country, every one of them is going to be killed if even one of them can't come up with the answer. And for a while, this decree goes unanswered. No one can answer it. And all the wise men are understandably freaking out, probably you know, packing their suitcase, making an exit plan, when Daniel hears about this decree. Daniel's included as an advisor. He was one of the wise men. So he's in this group that is going to be executed if they can't come up with the answer. And as we read this next part, as we read Daniel getting involved, pay very close attention to his reaction, what he does, how he says what he says. It's very important, right? And this is going to give you insight, wink, wink, into which God is real, right? Everybody pick up what I'm throwing down? I see where we're going with this. And this brings us to our point of the day. A real God is a God that you can trust in all times, Okay. A real God does not vanish when things get tough. A real God is one that's with, with you through thick and thin, is worthy of your, tra- your praise, your thanks, your devotion in good times and in bad. And that's what we're going to see Daniel do. So let's look at verses 14 to 18. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, so he's already got a sword on his side, he's going out there, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for, God, plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, again, the difference between Daniel's response and King Nebuchadnezzar's response cannot be overstated, including the astrologers. The astrologers begged for time, begged for information so they can try to work something out, right? They're, they're, they're relying on humans to solve this problem. They don't know a God who can solve it for them. It's going to fail. But look how Daniel handled it. When he heard the decree, keeping his mind his, his own life was at risk, he spoke calmly uh, with wisdom to the king and the king's guard. He wasn't trying to buy time. He asked for time to go pray, right? So he could do it. He trusted his God. He knew his God would be there for him, and it showed. That's why the commander of the guard even allowed him to go speak to King Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. And King Nebuchadnezzar recognized the difference as well. Notice he didn't get mad at Daniel for trying to pull out information. He says, yeah, go ahead, pray, go figure it out. So Daniel goes back to his house, and he speaks to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are actually that's the Hebrew names for 
meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you heard those names before? Those, that's their Babylonian names. Before they were taken into captivity in Israel, they were known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he instructs them, tells them this predicament, and he tells them to pray. And again, notice the difference here. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and all his men, they're all, they're all freaking out. Everyone's going to die, and it's, all, it's splitting them apart. But Daniel and those three, they come together and they pray. They work together. They don't turn on each other, right? So the story goes that they pray, and during the night, God answers his prayer. And this is what, it, this is what the text tells us in 19 to 23. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And he said, praised be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells in him. I thank you and praise you, God, are my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. The reason I read all of that was, what did Daniel do the moment the prayer was answered? Did he run to King Nebuchadnezzar? What did he do? He stopped and he prayed. He didn't go, hey, thanks, man, good job. And then he went through all of this stuff. He said, God, you do this, you do this, you've done this, you've blessed us, you've done so much. He takes time to pray. His life is still in jeopardy. Where's his, where's his mind, where's his heart? It's on God and thanking God. He knows God has answered his prayer, so he's going to spend time thanking God. I think that's just phenomenal. That's where he goes first, right? And what this shows is two things. This is what we should take from this part of the story. Number one, God is real and he can be trusted. God obviously answered his prayer. He came through for him. God is obviously in control. The second thing that we need to learn from this is that God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to reach out to him during hard times, when we have no answers, when we're scared, when we have no hope. He wants to be there with us. He didn't create us, move off to a different universe, and we never see him again. I love the story of creation where it says that God created man from the dust of the earth, and then what did he do? He breathed the breath of life into him. He breathed. It's very intimate. It's very close. God wants to be there with us. That's, it's intentional. That's how we should be. He wants us to share our lives with him. And no matter what we're going through, good or bad, we should reach out to him. Now, when Daniel is done praising and thanking God, he does go before King Nebuchadnezzar. And notice what he does, though. Because Daniel's God is true and real, he doesn't make a request of the king's guard. He makes a command. Let's read what he says. Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and he was one of those guys, and he said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. He didn't ask anything. He gave a command. Do this. Take me there. Well, it's a statement of confidence. Not arrogance, but he was confident. He knew God had answered his prayer. So Daniel goes before the king, and he reminds him. He said, listen, you gave this decree. No wise men, no enchanter, no astrologer that you have ever known of. Your religion can't answer this for you. But it was answered by my God. My God gave me the vision. And now he's going to describe it, verse 31 to 35. And he's going to tell him, this is what you dreamt. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, 
its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, while you're looking at this statue, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all of it, were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. Then the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Pretty heavy-duty stuff, right? Now, there's a lot there. We're going to go through it, but I want to show you a picture. This is an artist's rendering of what that statue likely would have looked like. We put it all together, and then we're going to go through it bit by bit. So we go, there we go. This is what the head would have looked like. It was a head of fine gold, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. It, probably, it represented the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Uh, the breast and the arms of silver were the Medes and the Persians. The belly and the thighs of brass were the Macedonians, or that's all the Greek Empire. The legs of iron were the Roman Empire. Remember that? And then the feet and toes of clay, they represent uh, after kings that come up after uh, kingdoms after the, the fall of Rome. So there's a ton of history here. Now, what I want you to keep in mind is there is no way Daniel could have come up with that on his own. Would you agree? To that detail and have nailed it. That is exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. But you have to remember, that's only the first part. Hey, man, this is what you dreamt. This is exactly what it was. Now he has to tell them what it means. What all that means, right? How to interpret it. So this is, what, this is what he says, verses 36 to 38. This was a dream, and now we're going to interpret for you, king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hand he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head, you are that head of gold. Now because King Nebuchadnezzar's Greatness, the size of his kingdom, and he was basically, he was an absolute monarch. He had 100% control, total control over everything in his realm. He is pictured as the, the golden head of that statue. Uh, now let's look at verse 39 to 43. He's going to go through the rest. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours, and then next a third, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have the same strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly of iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixed with clay. All right, there's a ton of stuff in there. Can we kind of picture all that? It's heavy duty, a lot of history. So let's take it kind of bit by bit. The second kingdom there it refers to as the Persians. The Persian Empire is ruled by a guy named Cyrus the Great. Google him if you want. The third kingdom was the Greeks, ruled by Alexander the Great. And each kingdom came along, they uh, controlled more and more space. The fourth empire is the Roman Empire. And of course, they had a really huge empire. It was the, basically the Middle East all the way up to what Scotland, I think, some way up high. Uh, very widespread. And the reason each kingdom is listed going down from the head of gold all the way down is a less valuable type of metal is that even though they may have controlled more land, they were less secure. They were harder to manage. 
Um, again, again, Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. He controlled a small area, which is basically modern-day Iraq, kind of in that area. And these kingdoms got bigger, more, more, they were less cohesive, lots of different types of people. Um, and they were harder to manage. Uh, but they were big enough on the world stage to be included in this vision. And what's unique about this, this is like the 10,000-foot view of the future, of what's coming. These, these events, what they're talking about, don't involve 10 years or 100 years, but really uh, thousands of years. Um, started around 600 B.C. and still haven't completely come to fruition today. Now, the last part of this vision is the real reason why I think Nebuchadnezzar got this vision in the first place. And it involves Jesus Christ and the role he's playing now and in the future. And it's not all the way complete yet. And as we read this last part, this is what I want you to think of. Think about what you know about Jesus Christ, what God's plan is for the world and how he wants to, everyone to follow Jesus Christ, how he's going to reshape things. Let's read that because you're going to see what it's foreshadowing. So it's verses 44 to 45. In the time of those kings, this is after Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. This dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Again, now what's important to note here, and we emboldened that, is that it was not by human hands. This is not a human kingdom. All the kingdoms listed previously, they were human kingdoms. Human kings based on their own rules, they came from their, their own religions. None of that works. The future, what God is intending, is for Jesus Christ to rule. He's the king and everyone follows him. So it's not created by human hands. And I think we can all admit, no matter what we do, no matter who we elect, all that kind of stuff, we're all human we have problems. You know, we're not based truly on Jesus Christ. That's why it's not done by human hands. The only way to accomplish this is through God and his plans for the earth. For the earth. And that's why in the big picture, this is what Jesus does, he calls us to leave our sinful lives behind, to follow him, to become baptized, to mold our lives after him, to completely remake the world. Right? And so it's, it's not an accident that, that all this, this vision mimics, mirrors what Jesus is going to do for the earth. That's God's plan for the world, where sin is removed and everyone makes the conscious choice to follow Jesus Christ. But that's also, if you notice, that's why the wording is also so destructive. God is remaking things. He has to smash all those old kingdoms to rebuild it on Jesus Christ. And when you think about it in that sense, it's actually pretty cool. It also, I think if we're being honest, kind of blows your mind when you think of the amount of information that Nebuchadnezzar was given. And you can understand when he got this, he had no idea how to interpret it. He had no idea what to do with it. It was just huge. It was massive, right? But it also kind of gives us a, a hint as to what Jesus is going to do. And so in the future, let's look at Matthew 25 and let's see how Jesus describes specifically what he's going to do in the future. So it's Matthew 25, 31 to 34, and then verse 41. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. He will put, his, put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus is describing the same process in a different way, how when he comes, he will judge the entire world. And those that believed in him, that followed him, that turned away from their sinful lives and sought forgiveness, they will have a place in the new kingdom. But those who did not, who held on to their old ways, who followed their own desires, they will not have a place in this kingdom. Now, let's read the last few verses of Daniel chapter 2, and let's see how Nebuchadnezzar responds to all this information, right? And how it was interpreted for him. So it's verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, Daniel, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So what was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, response to this interpretation of his dream? Did he go up and give him a high five? No, what did he do? He felt prostrate. He laid down face first before Daniel. This is an absolute monarch, a dictator, a tyrant. He bowed before no one. And yet, what did he do in this case? He bowed before Daniel. Now, he didn't need to bow before Daniel, but we got to give him a little credit. He didn't know what to do. He just knew he needed to do that. He knew God had acted. He was lower than God, and that's how he responded. He offered Daniel offerings and incense again. Wasn't, he didn't need to do that for Daniel, but he knew he got something, a great gift from God, and he couldn't let that go unanswered. He had to give back. He knew he recognized God was there. Again, that's what he thought to do at the moment, but he literally lowered himself, which is really, really cool. When he confronted with the hard truth, he understood that's what he did. He felt indebted, indebted to God. And so that actually really kind of starts to highlight how our relationship should begin with God as well, each person. In starting to become part of God's family, each person needs to recognize that we are not on the same level as God. We're not. Each one of us needs to recognize that we are sinful, that God is holy, and we are below God. That's why we lower ourselves. That's why we humble ourselves. You know, and um, Jesus, he asked his disciples a very poignant question. And the way he words this is special because it really gets to the heart of what you believe and then how you appear to the outside world. That's the, really the type of follower he wants. That's where all this is pointing. Let's read this in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And he's talking about himself. He's saying, hey, listen, who do people say that I am? And the disciples replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And Jesus looked him in the eye and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you tell people that I am? And Peter had a great response. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now notice Jesus, he wasn't saying, hey, listen, you know, what do you do here? He wants to know how the world sees them. What do they do in the outside world? Like, for instance, when you come to church, every one of you can come to church and you can sit nice and quiet. Mm -hmm, yes, oh, great, great. And then go out to your normal lives and forget everything you learned here. You can totally do that. You can fool us here. Jesus wants to know, though, what do you actually believe in your heart? And what does the world 
learn about me from you? How do you actually live? That's where his concern was. He wants people who are changed, people who truly believe, who truly want to leave their sinful lives behind and follow him for real. That's what he's asking about. Jesus was extremely smart. He wasn't the type that you could, be, that you could fool. That's why in this prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, it talks about a rock not created by human hands that crushes everything. And then this rock fills the earth. Jesus is here to, in a sense, biblical sense, to smash the old ways and build up on top of him. Those old, all those old kingdoms, their religions, their money, their wealth, none of them could save them. None of them are what's about what matters. What matters is Jesus Christ and following him. Now, this actually brings us to the most important part of today, and this is, uh, we're going to further ask what Jesus means to you. Who is he really? And you don't have to tell me now, but I want you to answer this question for yourself. Is he your Messiah? Do you understand who he is and what he does for the earth? If your answer is yes, that's wonderful, that's awesome. But if you don't know, if you've never been asked that question, if you're not sure, that's okay. We're not here to judge you. Each one of us, we're sinful. Each one of us needs a Savior, just like everyone else here. So what we want to do, and we're not shy about this, we want everyone to know Jesus Christ. We do, 100%. So if you haven't had that opportunity to, to answer that question, we're going to give you that opportunity this morning. And you don't have to stand up, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to say a prayer, and in this prayer, all you have to do, if that's what you would like to do, is repeat the words that I say. Do it quietly right there in your seat. Whatever you say is between you and God. But in this prayer, we also want to recognize that None of us are perfect. We all need help. Amen? So we're going to pray for strength, courage, to remain strong during difficult times, and to rely on God, just like Daniel did. Amen? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me, to save me, and to guide my steps the rest of my life. And Father, today, we as a church pray that you will increase our faith, each one of us here. We ask you to give us courage and strength and determination to endure all trials. May everything we go through, whether it's good or bad, May it strengthen our faith, our resolve, and may we always lean on you for all things. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope and that we're saved. And Father, we pray that as our faith grows, you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us, and we thank you for the church. Most of all, though, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.